That will be our Bible reading and our prayer today. And I would like if you would pray along with me as I read this. And notice I didn't say, say this together with me, but pray this together with me. Let's make it personal for each one of us as, I, as we pray together. So let me read the first phrase in verse 9, and then you come in with our Father which art in heaven, and we'll pray this together. Verses 9 through 13. And then after the amen at the end of verse 13, then you can, all of us can be seated. So let's pray. After this manner, therefore pray ye, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And you may be seated. Well, quite a bit of time has passed since the uh, last sermon I preached from Matthew chapter 6, which was on the verses immediately preceding the Lord's Prayer, which also pertain to the subject of prayer. And so I may just review that briefly before moving forward. In that message, we observed that our prayer times should be intentional. It's good to have a scheduled and planned time for prayer. We also observed that our prayer times should be intimate. They should be personal and meaningful, not just a formality. We also looked at the aspect of interactive prayer, public praying, when we pray together, when we agree together and unite together in prayer. And we also observed that our prayer time should be intense. As Norman indicated this morning, it's not just a matter of saying prayers or quoting something, but it's, it's warfare. It's, it's meaningful. If I would have had more time in that sermon, I may have added a fifth point, and if I would have done so, it would have been that our prayer times should be inspirational. But we did not have time for that in the last message, so I'm going to use that word as an introduction for this message on the Lord's Prayer. Our prayer times should be inspirational, not just simply a routine, not just some, simply an obligation, not just something that we do, but they should be inspiring. Maybe that's something you struggle with. As, uh, as an introduction to this sermon, I'd like to read to you a story. And the title of this story is Hailing the Chief. It's written by John Duckworth. Uh, this story is a, a type of a parable, and it compares our prayer time to a visit with the president in the Oval Office. Now, maybe I should clarify that I first read this story back in the, perhaps in the 80s or early 90s, when those who were elected to the office of president carried themselves with a, a lot higher level of dignity and honor than some of our more recent presidents seem to do. So try to maintain that mindset as you listen to this story of a man worthy of our highest respect and a man who carries himself with respect. 
And also, try to identify yourself in this story. I think most of, ourselves, most of us will find ourselves in here somewhere. Hailing the Chief is the title of the story. He sat at his desk in the Oval Office, waiting. He waited, even though there were a stack of letters to sign, a cable to read, a press conference to prepare for, a briefing with the cabinet to attend, and a tea for an ambassador in the Rose Garden. Looking up from his schedule, he smiled. Yes, there were a lot of things to do. But first, some people were coming, some very important people. At least, he thought they were important. That was why he kept inviting them to come to the Oval Office and talk with him. He longed to hear what was in their hearts and minds, to talk about how they felt, what they needed, and how he could help them accomplish their goals. Mr. President, said a voice in the intercom, they're here, sir. Ah, he said, send the first one in, please. He leaned forward on the edge of his chair, waiting. The door opened, and a housewife ushered herself into the room. Without acknowledging the president's smile or outstretched hand, she plopped herself into a chair. Then she shut her eyes tight. Dear Mr. President, she said in a nasal sing-song voice, thank you for the world so sweet. Thank you for the food we eat. Thank you for the birds that sing. Thank you, sir, for everything. Goodbye. Before the president could say a word in response, the woman opened her eyes, got up, and walked out the door. <clears throat> he sighed. <clears throat> Why did it always seem to go like this? He pushed the intercom button. Next, please, he said. The door opened, and in came a stout man who wore a tuxedo. Again, the president's outstretched hand was ignored. Oh, thou chief executive who art in the White House, said the man, clasping his hands and looking at the ceiling. O oh, thou in whom so much doth constitutionally dwell, upon whose desk has been placed a most effective blotter, incline thine ear toward thy most humble citizen, and grant that thy many entities may be manifoldly endowed upon the fruitful plain. Wincing, the president closed his eyes and rubbed his temples. And may thy thou dust harkneth whatly didst shall evermore and twain asunder. The man concluded in a loud monotone. Excuse me, said the president, but... What? Goodbye, said the man, seeming not to hear, and walked out. The president sighed again. Next, please, he spoke into the intercom. This time, when the door opened, there seemed to be no one there. Then the president looked down and saw a man crawling through the doorway on his hands and knees. Oh, Mr. G great and awful pr pr president, blubbered the man, not looking up from the carpet. I am but a disgusting piece of filth in your presence. I am less than that. How dare I enter here? How dare I think that you would do anything but grind me into the floor? Please get up, said the president, offering his hand. You don't have to do that. I want to talk to you. But the man went right on grumbling. I deserve only to be squashed under the weight of your mighty desk, he whined. I could never have gotten an invitation to talk with you. It must have been a mistake. Oh, how can you ever forgive me for breaking in like this? I'm so sorry, so sorry, so sorry. Still on his hands and knees, he crawled out. The man's groaning faded down the hall. The president shook his head, then slowly pushed the intercom button. Next, he said, sounding tired. In moments, a young man entered. He was wearing earbuds and bobbing up and down to music. 
Hey, Prez, the young man said, ignoring the offered hand. What's happening? He looked out the window. Nice place you got here. I'm like, so glad we could have this little chat, you know. You're not bad for an old dude, I guess. You don't bother me, and I won't bother you. Okay, well, I got to go. Hang in there. And he walked out. The president drummed his fingers on his desk. Next, please, he said wearily. An elderly man walked, marched in, staring at a piece of paper in his hand. He, too, ignored the president's greeting. Mr. President, he declared, keeping his eyes on the list, I want there to be a parking place waiting for me when I go downtown this afternoon. Not a parallel parking space either, one I can drive right into, and not one with a parking meter. You can see to it that none of those meter maids gives me a, a ticket. Now, this is important. The president cleared his throat politely. Speaking of important, he ventured, how do you feel about my program to feed the hungry? Would you like to have a part? And another thing, the man interrupted, I lost my best golf club, a putter. Can't remember where I put it. Now, you find it for me, will you? Got to have that club before Saturday. I know you can do it. Goodbye. With that, the old man got up and shuffled out the door. The president slumped in his chair. Next, he said, there was a pause. At last, a young woman slowly entered. She looked like a sleepwalker, eyes nearly shut, jaw slack, her feet dragging. She yawned and slid into her chair. Dear Mr. President, she said, her head drooping. I know I should talk to you when I'm more uh, awake, but I'm so busy, so sleepy, there, there was something I was going to say. I was going to... She started to snore. The president buzzed his secretary who stepped in. Can you help this young lady out? He asked, sighing again. Certainly, Mr. President, said the secretary, and helped the dozing girl to her feet. The president gazed sadly out the window. How many do we have left? He asked. I'm sorry, sir, the secretary replied, but as usual, most of the people you send invitations to said they were too busy to talk. They had to go to the ball game, wax the car, do the dishes, go to the office. Oh, said the president dejectedly. Isn't there anyone left? Well, there is one, sir, she said, but you wouldn't want to talk to him. Well, why not? Well, because he's just, just a child, Mr. President. The chief executive shrugged. Well, you may as well show him in, he said. Moments later, a little boy entered shyly. He looked around the room, his eyes wide. Are, are you really the president? He asked. The president smiled. I really am, he said, offering his hand. The little boy reached up and shook it. Then he sat down and folded his hands in his lap and waited. The president watched, amused, amazed, as the boy sat politely for nearly a minute. Isn't there something you want to tell me? The president asked. The president asked finally, something you have to recite or ask for or say? The little boy looked down for a moment, thinking. Then he looked up. Yes, he said, I guess there is. Well, what is it? The president asked. 
Thank you so much for inviting me here, the boy said. That's all. When the president heard that, he couldn't seem to say anything for a while. All he could do was smile. But then they talked and talked and talked for the longest, most wonderful time. What did you find yourself in that story? Which visitor are you? Are you the boy who talked and talked for the longest, most wonderful time? And if not, why not? I indicated that our prayer time should be inspirational, and obviously not all of those visits were very inspirational. In Luke 11, verse 1, one of the disciples came to Jesus and said, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus responded to that request by saying, when ye pray, say. And then he gave them what we call the Lord's Prayer as a model prayer. Perhaps this prayer would be more appropriately referred to as the disciples' prayer or as the believer's prayer. At any rate, this is the prayer that Jesus gave when the disciple asked him, teach us to pray. The Lord's Prayer has been called the most majestic piece of literature that has ever been written. It's also been called the common denominator of all Christianity. If you've been around at all in various countries or in various church services of other groups, you have probably heard this prayer wherever you traveled. You can hear it quoted all over the world by many different religions. That's why it's referred to as the common denominator of Christianity. This prayer is so well known that many of us could quote the entire prayer without even thinking about one single truth that it contained. And the sad thing is, many times we do quote the prayer without thinking about what it says. Now, I do not stand before you this morning to declare how successful I am or how wonderful my prayer life is. I find this subject challenging because I need it. And I say with the disciple, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach me to pray. Luke records Jesus as saying, when ye pray, say. Matthew records, this them say, records him as saying, after this manner, therefore, pray, you, pray ye. So Jesus gave this prayer, I believe, as a prayer that we can quote directly. And I think it's appropriate that we do so. But he also gave it as a model after which to pattern our prayers. He said, after this manner, pray ye. It's kind of like a road map showing us the route through prayer, the route to follow as we pray. And this morning, I want to look at this prayer as a model, not only something that we quote directly, but as a model we can use after which to pattern our prayers. And in doing so, we will look at it phrase by phrase to notice some aspects that our prayers should contain. So if you feel this morning that your prayers are not inspirational, if you're one of those people who get sleepy when you're praying, one of those people who just come with your list of requests or demands, as it seems, one of those people who 
doesn't even feel worthy to be in the presence of God, hopefully we can learn some aspects from this prayer. I'd like to begin by giving an overview of the prayer. And I've borrowed this overview, uh, as I'm looking at here, from David Jeremiah. In his book, Prayer, the Great Adventure, he presents this as an overview. So I'd like to look at this overview, and then we'd like to dive into the prayer itself. This prayer teaches us two things as we look at it. It teaches us, first of all, who God is. It also teaches us who we are. It's interesting how much this prayer focuses on God and who he is and what our perception of him should be and what our response to him should be. And we plan to look at that a little bit later. So this prayer begins by focusing on God. It says, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. See how the focus is on God and on his kingdom, his name, his will. Then it continues by focusing on man and our poverty and our need. Give us, forgive us, lead us, deliver us. But the prayer does not stop there. It returns, it concludes by coming full circle and again drawing our focus back to God as it concludes referring to thy kingdom, thy power, and thy glory. We need to remember that the purpose of our prayers is not to focus on ourselves primarily, but to focus on God. This is God's kingdom. He has the power. He has the glory. While we have the needs and the wants and the poverty, God has everything. We have nothing. And is it not amazing that the one who has everything not only allows but yearns and longs for those of us who have nothing to come to him in prayer? What do we have to offer? Very little. We need to offer him our praise. We need to offer him our worship. But God exists very well without those things. What does he need from us? We have nothing to offer. So we look at this here as an overview of the prayer. Sometimes when you see something from above, you move off to a different perspective. You see it from a different angle. You notice some different things. I'd like to look at an overview from a different perspective. Some of the aspects of this prayer. There's the aspect of praise. Hallowed be thy name. There's the aspect of priorities, where, he's, where Jesus tells us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, many times we think of prayer as asking God to give us the things that we request. We, we, we may think of it as making our priorities become priority to God. But really, prayer is all about aligning our priorities with God's. Not aligning, aligning his with ours, but aligning our priorities with God. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This prayer includes the aspect of provision, asking God to provide our daily needs. It's also the idea of personal relationships. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. There is a time to take inventory as we pray. And if we realize that our relationship with God or our relationship with other men is struggling, if there's something that needs attention, we need to stop and take care of that. 
There's the aspect of protection. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And finally, the promise. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Jesus is reminding us of an outstanding promise. The God to whom we pray, the everlasting king, with a power to do whatever he pleases and a glory that outshines anything this world has ever seen, this will never change. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And this is the God who invites us to come to him in prayer. Does that take your breath away? If it doesn't, it should. Moving forward, we want to look at, I have 11 components of the Lord's Prayer that we want to look at in a bit more detail. And as I was preparing this sermon, initially I was pretty determined to cover this prayer in one Sunday and in one sermon, but I finally gave up. There's, I feel, just too much here to cover in one sermon, so we're going to be looking at the first portion portion of this prayer here this morning and then continuing. So this morning we would like to look at five components of this prayer and then continuing on with the remaining in the, in the following sermon. What are some components that we notice in this prayer? First of all, we're going to look at this phrase by phrase. The first words that it begins with is our Father. The first component is as we pray, we need to recognize God as our Father. We are praying to our Father. We are praying to a personal God. This is a God who cares about us in a personal way, and we can have a personal relationship with him. And our prayers, or I should say, that personal relationship with God is the basis for our prayers. Our prayers are based on that relationship. Now, in the Old Testament, the Jewish people had a relationship with God. But their relationship with God, to a large extent, was as a nation rather than as individuals. In the Old Testament, God was not really typified as what one would call a personal God. Now, in the Old Testament, God was referred to as Father. I think a total of 14 times. But if I'm not, not mistaken, every one of those times when God was referred to as Father, it referred to him as a father of the nation. You see, it was not that individual connection. That immediately changed in the book of Matthew. You don't read far in the book of Matthew until God is referred to as Father repeatedly. In fact, Jesus referred to him as Father 17 times in the Sermon on the Mount alone. That's more times than in the entire Old Testament. And now he is not simply the father of a nation. He is a personal father. He is our father. So we are praying to God as a personal God. I'll come back to that aspect a little bit later. So we're praying to a personal God, which means that prayer is a personal communication. It's not a matter of reciting something that's written. There may be a time and a place for that, but prayer is a personal communication. It establishes a relationship between God and you as that of a father and a child. How do you address your father? 
typically you address your father with a degree of respect, but also in a familiar way. There's that combination of personal and yet respect. And I think that's appropriate as we pray to God as well. And Jesus in this model prayer is indicating that our relationship with God can be all that you ever had with your father as you connected with your father. Or maybe we should say that Jesus is indicating that our relationship with God can be all that you ever wished to have with your earthly father. Perhaps your relationship with your father left a bit to be desired. Perhaps you feel it left a lot to be desired. Maybe you feel that your father was absent or aloof or angry and distant. Maybe you feel that your father was just always too busy to have time for you. Maybe you feel that you never quite could achieve your father's approval. God is a father who is waiting to meet all of those needs. He is there. He is available. He has time. He is not angry. He wants to give you his approval. So when you pray, you are praying to your father, a father whose love and care for you is greater than you can imagine. I ask you the question, is your prayer time inspirational? And if not, consider this aspect. Have you been relating to God as a personal father, a father who cares for you? Moving on, our Father, which art in heaven, is the next point. We need to recognize our Father's preeminence. Our Father's preeminence. He is our Father, but He is in heaven. Now, those two things almost seem to be a contrast because the fact that God is in heaven, he is a God of majesty. And sometimes in our effort to show God as a personal God, we fail to recognize his majesty. We downplay the significance of who he really is. Now, we may not go so far as that young man who walked into the president's office wearing earbuds, calling him an old dude, but we may get pretty close as we lose that level of respect and majesty that we should have. Our Father in heaven is the king of glory, sitting on a throne of majesty. The most spectacular reception that ever took place in the Oval Office or the, or the Rose Garden is pure filth compared to the majesty in which our Father sits, the majesty of our Father. So he is a God of majesty, but at the same time, he is our Father. Now, how do these two mesh? How can we reconcile these two things? Some years ago, when John F. Kennedy was president, and I don't remember that, our lives only overlapped by six days. So if you know your history, I guess you can conclude when I was born. But while John F. Kennedy was president, Life magazine published a picture which captured the hearts of the American people. And that picture was a picture of John Kennedy's two young children playing with their toys on the floor of the Oval Office. 
Now, why did that capture the hearts of the American people? Perhaps it was because it bridged a gap between two facts. Kennedy was president of the United States, but he was also a dad. He held what some considered to be the highest position in the free world, yet at his feet were two children who called him daddy. I don't think I would have been allowed to play where his children played. I don't think you would have been allowed to play where his children played because you did not call Mr. Kennedy daddy. But they could because he was their daddy. In a similar way, God is the king of glory, but he's our father. And he invites us to sit at his feet in the realms of his majesty. This is what it means when we pray, our father, which art in heaven. So our prayers need to recognize the majesty of God while addressing him as our father. Our Father, which art in heaven. Moving on. Hallowed be thy name. So we recognized our Father's preeminence. We also need to recognize our Father's holiness. What does it mean that God is holy? When we hallow his name, it's just simply recognizing the holiness of God. We're lifting up the holiness of his name. If something is hallowed, it's simply indicating that it is holy. We need to acknowledge God's holiness. What does it mean that God is holy? Well, God never thinks an evil or impure thought. Never does an impure thought pass through his mind. He's never tempted to sin because he cannot sin. James in chapter 1 says God cannot be tempted with evil. He's holy. He's not tempted to sin. He cannot be defiled in any way. You cannot put a smudge on God's character because he is holiness. A.W. Tozer says, he does not conform to any standard because he is the standard. David Jeremiah says, God can never be lifted any higher than he is because he is already at the pinnacle of righteousness and holiness. And because he is holy, he cannot tolerate sin in any form in his presence. God is holy, we are not. Those two things are incompatible. They cannot mix. That seems to leave us pretty much in the dark. Seems to leave us pretty hopeless. But because of his holiness and because of his love, God offered his son, his perfect sinless son, as the ultimate sacrifice for our unholiness. Does that act of holiness and love grip you? That awareness should cause us to worship his holiness. As we come before his name, our Father, hallowed be your name. You are the Holy One. I worship your holiness God in his holiness is worthy of our worship. This is what the seraphim in Isaiah's vision were doing, what they were crying, holy, holy, holy 
is the Lord. And this is what the creatures in heaven will be crying, holy, 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 worshiping the holiness of God. What do your prayers consist of? So often I find myself just diving into the things I want to request, the things I want to ask for. But notice in the prayer, the model that Jesus is offering, any request that I have is deferred until we give God the honor that he is due. We think of worshipers as an audience. Perhaps you would refer to yourself as an audience here this morning. You're here as an audience to worshiping God. But worshipers are not the audience. When we worship, God is the audience, and our worship is directed to him individually or corporately as a group. He is receiving the action. But worship is not simply an action. It's not only an action. It's also a lifestyle. It's living in a way that honors him, a way that would draw others to him. Every time we pray this prayer, the Lord's Prayer, and every time we pattern our prayers after this prayer, we should be reminded of God's holiness and that in our worship to him, our lives should draw people towards his holiness. So I come back to the question this morning. Are your prayers inspirational? If you find that your prayer is not, your prayers are not inspirational, your prayer time is not inspirational, try focusing more on the holiness of God and worshiping his holiness, thinking about who he is and just coming to him in worship. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. We not only recognize his holiness, but we also commit to the Father's kingdom. Thy kingdom come. What does that mean? Quite a few years ago, when our oldest daughter was very young, we would sometimes pray this prayer together. One time when we finished praying, she asked, didn't, any, didn't anybody come when the king didn't come? You see, she obviously did not understand the words. She understood thy kingdom come as the king didn't come. And so she asked, well, didn't anybody come when the king didn't come? It took us a little bit to understand what she was getting at. But there was something else she didn't understand at her young age. She wondered if nobody came when the king didn't come. But she did not understand that if God's kingdom does not fill our lives, something else will. If God's kingdom does not come, there will be another kingdom occupying your life. There will not be a vacuum. The, king, or the question is, what kingdom is going to receive the allegiance of my life? And there is more than one kingdom. We're aware of that. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world... My servants would behave differently than what they do. But because my kingdom is not of this world, my servants are not behaving the way you would expect them to. They are behaving to a different standard. 
So we often hear of the two kingdoms, the kingdom of heaven versus the kingdom of the world. In this world, there are many kingdoms, or maybe I should say many sub-kingdoms. These kingdoms are, are all part of the kingdom of the world, but with, within that realm, there are many sub-kingdoms. What comes to your mind as you think of some of the kingdoms of this world? Well, you probably think of political kingdoms, which are part of this world system. And within those political kingdoms, there may be family dynasties that go from generation to generation, the same family being part of this political empire or whatever it is. But there are other kingdoms. This world has financial empires that we hear about sometimes, or business empires. There may be mega-businesses. There may be micro-businesses. There may be everything in between. But there are people who are committed, their lives are committed to these empires. And it doesn't matter if it's a big one or a small one. Your life can be just as committed to a small business, to a small empire, as to a big one. There are many people who are committed to the business empires. Well, there are also sports empires. Sometimes we refer to dynasties within these empires where one team, year after year, just seems to kind of have the uh, upper hand. And we, we refer to that as a dynasty. And the allegiance that people express to these empires is obvious. There's no doubt that people, people's allegiance is to these empires. Well, sometimes there's also individual personas or identities that we spend a lifetime building. And many of those people involved in these other empires, the political, the financial, the sports empires, many of the people who are directly involved in them are only using those empires as a means to build their own personal empire and to achieve their own personal goals and personal fame and personal riches and whatever it is that they're looking for. Now, all of these empires are a part of this world. And obviously, as long as we are living in this world, we will participate in some of these to varying degrees. But the question is, where is my allegiance? Which empire will dominate my priorities and my lifestyle? Do these kingdoms control my life? Or are they only tools for a greater cause? These earthly kingdoms will all pass away. In Revelation chapter 11, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord. And he shall reign forever and ever. They will pass away. They're going to be absorbed into his kingdom. There is more than one kingdom. It's up to us to choose our allegiance. We must choose our allegiance. Jesus came to earth and he said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But that's not all he said. He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He is indicating that we need to move our allegiance. We need to turn from this kingdom to his kingdom. And that's what this prayer is indicating. Thy kingdom come. If we want our prayers to be effective, we need to align ourselves and our allegiance with God. We need to evaluate 
our allegiance. Because many times, if we're honest, when we pray, our heart's cry is, my kingdom come. That's what we're really looking for, building our goals. Our prayer needs to be, thy kingdom come. We spend our lives and energy trying to build our own kingdoms. And God's kingdom is just some peripheral interference over here on the side. We need to give some attention sometimes. What kingdom are you building? What kingdom are you advertising or living for? Are you investing your energies in God's kingdom? When we pray, we are appealing to the sovereign of the heavenly kingdom. And if we are addressing the sovereign of one kingdom while we're living with our allegiance to another kingdom... Why would this sovereign listen to us? Why would he answer our requests if we're trying to build some other kingdom that is ultimately opposed to his kingdom? We would recognize that as not being logical. If we want to draw from his power and his influence, we need to be committed to his kingdom. So what do you pray in your heart? You may not say the words, But what does your life show? Is your prayer, may my kingdom come, may my kingdom built, or thy kingdom come? Are your prayers inspirational? If not, maybe it's because we're building the wrong kingdom. Maybe it's because our our allegiance is to the wrong kingdom. We need to consider our allegiance. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth, on earth as it is in heaven. And I just noticed I made a very common mistake. Many times when we pray this prayer, we pray on earth as it is in heaven, and that's what I wrote there. Jesus said, in earth as it is in heaven. And I'm not enlarging in that difference this morning. I think it's, uh, I think every word Jesus used is important, but I'm just pointing out that I did use the wrong word there on uh, what I projected. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Now, this is a matter of evaluating our priorities. I mentioned earlier that prayer is all about aligning our priorities with God's not aligning his priorities with ours. And I think that has become very obvious as we look at these first phrases. The object of prayer is to align our priorities with God's priorities. If we're honest, I think many of us need to admit that much of our prayer life consists of asking God for what we want. We want him to make our wishes his priority. Do we stop to consider as we pray what God wants in this situation? And do we consider how our prayers can can support his priorities and make our goals to see his priorities be accomplished? You see, maybe God is trying to accomplish or wants to accomplish something greater than the small things that we are asking for. And he may be waiting for us to consider what he would like to do. We need to evaluate our priorities. And when we evaluate our priorities, 
we need to yield our priorities. When we pray, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven, we are yielding our priorities to God. And this means that we may need to give up something that is important to us. So I asked the question this morning, is there anything, anything in your life that you are not willing to just hand over to God, that you're not willing to surrender to God? If there's something in your life, you are not ready to honestly pray, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven until you're ready to surrender that. Our prayers are not complete if they do not include surrendering ourselves, yielding ourselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven means that what we want is that God's desire is our command. His desire, not only our command, his desire is our delight. God, if this is what you want, it's what I want. I yield my priorities to you. And until we yield our values entirely to God, we may not experience all that prayer was meant to be. Oswald Chambers said, It is not so true that prayer changes things as that prayer changes me. You see, we have the idea that prayer should change what God is going to do. But first of all, we need to come to the point where we allow prayer to change us as we recognize who God is. Is your prayer time inspirational? Again, I ask that question. And if you find that it's not, take a look at your priorities. Are your priorities God's priorities? Well, we have just addressed a, a small portion of this prayer this morning. And I think this is a, an appropriate point to break off because from this point in verse 11, the focus changes to our needs, and that's where we'd like to pick up in the next sermon. I, like I said, I did not want to interrupt the prayer, but I, I think for the sake of time, we need to do that. So I come back to the question, is your prayer time inspirational? Do you find it inspirational? How is your visit to the, Oval, to the Oval Office, as it were? Is it meaningful? Do you find yourself talking and talking and talking for the most wonderful time? If not, these are some things to look at. Do you have that personal relationship with God as your Father while you recognize His preeminence and His holiness, His majesty? and his holiness. Are you committed to building his kingdom, and are you surrendering your priorities to his priorities, evaluating our priorities and yielding our priorities? I believe that our Christian lives will be no greater than our prayer lives. And as our prayer lives grow and develop, our Christian lives, our relationship with God also will grow and develop. 
And perhaps the disciples realized that to some extent when they gave this request, Lord, teach us to pray. They did not ask, Lord, teach us how to live the Christian life. They did not say, Lord, teach us to preach, teach us to heal, teach us to witness, teach us to do miracles. They asked, Lord, teach us to pray. Because they realized that that was key. They realized that there is power in prayer. Satan, too, realizes that there is power in prayer. He knows that it is key to your victory and success and growth as a Christian. And I believe he will do anything he can to keep you from it. Any way he can find to make you what you think is too busy. Someone has said you will face no greater attack as a Christian than the attack of spending time with God in prayer. You see, no enemy, no army fears an enemy without a weapon. No soldier has reason to fear an infantryman who has no ammunition. And Satan has no reason to fear a Christian who has no power, a Christian who does not pray. May our prayers focus, first of all, on God, on who he is and our relationship with him. Lord, teach us to pray. And I invite you to kneel as we pray.